It's Wednesday, September 16th in Los Angeles. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this is The Daily Dive. A massive $12 million settlement has been reached between the city of Louisville and the family of Breonna Taylor, who was killed during a no-knock raid by police back in March. What is eyebrow-raising is that the settlement also includes police reforms to be implemented. Tim Craig, national reporter for The Washington Post, has all the details. Then, as the AstraZeneca trials for the COVID-19 vaccine hit a snag, the debate resumes as to whether the guardrails and safety protocols worked as intended, or it's proof that we're moving too fast in a quest to return to normalcy prior to the pandemic. Liz Zabo, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, will update us on the status of the trials and what any setback may mean. And finally, as wildfires continue to rage out west and President Trump met with California officials, the debate intensified as to what role, if any, the federal government should play in the fight against climate change. Brady Dennis, environmental policy and public health issues reporter for The Washington Post, will bring us the latest. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We will now require a commanding officer to review and approve all search warrants affidavits in support of search warrants, and risk matrices before an officer seeks judicial approval for the warrant. Joining us now is Tim Craig, national reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you for making time for us today, Tim. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. The reported settlement is $12 million to the family of Breonna Taylor, who was shot eight times and killed in a no-knock warrant being served by the Louisville Police Department. But what seems to be unusual about this particular settlement is that it includes reform measures for the police department. What more can you tell me about it? Um, Well, the reforms deal with making it a little bit more visibility about when police do serve search warrants or storm into somebody's house looking for evidence or looking for to arrest somebody about a little bit more visibility from who has sort of eyes on what is happening there. So under this deal, police commanders would have to sign off on all of this, and they would also have to sort of be more involved in the sort of the planning and the execution of these sorts of things to make sure that all reasonable steps have been taken to try to avoid a mistake or going to a wrong address or storming into a house where maybe there are children inside where the officers themselves did not realize that. So just taking more care and more diligence to make sure that these sorts of raids are conducted as safely as is possible. It also includes some other things to make the police department a little bit more accountable to the community by um, encouraging them to do like community service up to two hours a week, which they'll get paid to do. And also trying to encourage more officers to move into the city and into poor neighborhoods in the city to sort of reestablish real sort of community policing efforts. Are there any benchmarks or enforcement provisions regarding these reforms, or are they just elaborate suggestions? Well, that's a good question, and I don't know fully the extent that would be triggered if this is not done as outlined. But at the same time, it was very clear from the press conference that the city mayor, the city attorney, they all seemed very much on board with implementing these reforms. Louisville was a pretty progressive city when you're looking at just the city itself. And I generally get the sense that city leaders are looking for a way to get out of what's really been a pretty big mess in their city. There's been protests every day. They are the focus of national attention every day. 
celebrities from basketball stars to Beyonce are calling out their police department for, for what happened in this situation. And I do think there's a sort of a genuine feeling that they want to move, move on and move past this. When you say move on and move past, does that then officially close the door for any oh. chance of criminal prosecution? Oh, no, no, no. See, that's a whole separate other issue. And that's what everyone stressed today, that there still remain two separate open investigations. The attorney general for the state of Kentucky, David Cameron, is investigating whether to bring criminal charges against the officers involved in uh, Breonna Taylor's death. And also the FBI is looking at this from a civil rights perspective about whether any of her civil rights were violated and there could be charges stemming from that. So that is still very much out there. And frankly, that is sort of a big flashpoint that still remains to be seen in this case. You can see a scenario where the Attorney General announces really any day now that he is or he's not filing charges. And that would have national ramifications on the state of things in this country, not just in Kentucky, but in this country, because I think this is a case that is being closely watched around the country. Would there have been any wisdom in withholding this announcement of the settlement until a final decision was going to be made on the charges, if only because the country has not been protesting, looking for a settlement, they've been looking for charges, and this might be quickly forgotten if there are no charges brought, or at least the issues of the protests have not been summarily addressed. Might this just be pushed aside if no charges are brought? My sense is that the lawyers and Breonna Taylor's family was ready to sort of get the best deal that they could get with the reforms that they sought and they believed would be effective. And once that was sort of on the table, that they didn't see any reason to just keep delaying this down the road. And I think the city of Louisville and the mayor of Louisville very much wanted to get this off his plate. This is a city that has been very, very much sort of gripped by this chaos. There have been other shootings related to her case. There have been multiple weeks of very violent protest in some regards in a city that's not accustomed to that sort of upheaval. So I think I think there was a sort of a genuine feeling on both sides to see what they can do to sort of move beyond that stage. And there's no need to delay it another year or six months or however. Is it fair to say that since charges may still be pending and that investigation is ongoing, that neither the city nor the Louisville Police Department has admitted any type of fault at this point? As part of the settlement, they are not admitting any fault in the settlement. At the same time, $12 million is a very large amount of money, even for these sorts of police misconduct cases. Even many other controversial ones that we've heard about in recent years have seemed to stop about the $6 million mark. He is Tim Craig, national reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you for making time for us today, Tim. Thank you very much. They need to look at everyone who's been vaccinated and see if anyone else is having these kinds of symptoms. Uh, we need to know, is there any reason to believe the vaccine actually caused this uh, or was this just a, a coincidence? Joining us now is Liz Zabo, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you for coming on today, Liz. Thanks for having me. The National Institutes of Health has launched an investigation into the case of a patient who suffered spinal cord damage after joining AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine trial. Depending on what I read, it's either proof that the testing process is working as designed or that it is evidence of moving too fast and putting the general public at risk. Sort this out for me if you can. 
I'd say this is the first example. I'd say this is the process working. There are actually several variety of safety valves that are built into the clinical trial process. So this is one in which a potential side effect was picked up. And we don't know yet if this side effect, which is supposed to be a, a spinal problem, if that really was related to the vaccine or not. That's why the NIH and others are investigating. What I'm seeing more and more is a comparison going back to H1N1 and the vaccine, which was developed and implemented very early in the Obama administration. Politics aside, is there any legitimate comparison as to the vaccine trials of H1N1 back in 2009 and COVID-19 today? The process of getting a vaccine will be longer for COVID because with H1N1, scientists already had a flu shot and all they needed to do was to substitute the H1N1 flu sequence for other flu sequences that we've used in the past. So scientists were familiar with the vaccine. They knew how that sort of vaccine worked. The big delay was that the flu vaccine is grown in chicken eggs. It's a bird virus, so it's grown in chicken eggs, and that takes some time. So there was a little bit of a delay, some manufacturing delays with the H1N1 vaccine. This is very different because this coronavirus is very new. We've never licensed a vaccine against a coronavirus before. And the technologies that companies are using to create this vaccine are also new. And most of them have never been used to make a vaccine before. Big picture. Can you describe the process as far as where we are in the progression as far as phase three trials? I keep hearing phase three. What does that mean for the layperson? Any drug that's going to be used in humans goes through a set period of study and a set sequence of trials. So first, they'll maybe test it in a cell in a Petri dish, in a lab dish. They might test it on mice. For this kind of vaccine, it's being tested in primates. Then the first type of trial is a phase one trial, and that's just to try to set the correct dose of the, of the vaccine or drug and to find out any early signs about safety. These are small trials, just a few dozen people, because these are first in human studies. They keep them small to make sure that no one's hurt. Then we go to a phase two trial. Their doctors are looking also for safety and some early signs of efficacy. And the big, really definitive study is the phase three trial. And for a vaccine, these are being given in the United States to 30,000 people for each trial. So there are two trials that are ongoing right now in the United States, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. They both are going to enroll at least 30,000 people. In fact, Pfizer just announced a couple days ago, they're upping that to 44,000 people. And the reason that those trials need to be so big is they want to look for rare side effects. They might be able to find out earlier if the vaccine is effective with fewer people, but sometimes there are rare side effects. And this spinal problem that a patient apparently had with the AstraZeneca drug, it's called transverse myelitis, that's really, really rare. So you're not going to see really rare but serious side effects until you test them in huge numbers of people. So right now we've got two trials that are in phase three. They're ongoing. The AstraZeneca trial had just started. That was also supposed to be a 30,000-person trial, but that's been paused because of this potential side effect. At the end of it all, best case scenario, at least in terms of the AstraZeneca proposed vaccine, would it be an annual shot like we get the flu shot or is it something which we may take one time and we're done like maybe the chicken pox virus that's a great question and in some ways this is going to resemble the childhood vaccinations if anyone out there has kids you know that they don't just get 
one shot, they'll get uh, a series like measles shots. You'll get two. Like the MMR. Uh, yeah, that's right. You'll you'll get one when the child's around maybe a year or 18 months, and then they get another one before they enter school. So with this one, people don't yet know how many shots we're going to need. Now, the first two vaccines that are closest to making it to approval right now in the U.S., the Pfizer shot and also the Moderna shot, those right now are two-dose vaccines. So you get your first dose, which primes your immune system. It sort of readies the immune system and prepares it. And then with the Moderna shot, you get your second shot four weeks later, and that really sets off the immune system to be ready to prepare for this virus and and ready to respond. With the Pfizer, it's slightly different. It's two shots three weeks apart. But one thing people should know is that let's say you get your first shot four weeks later, you get a second shot. It takes your immune system a good two weeks to develop those antibodies. So from the day you get your first inoculation until you may be protected would be six weeks. We don't know yet if we're going to need annual boosters like with the flu shot or even a booster sooner than that. We just don't know, but that's a really important question. She is Liz Zabo, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It'll start getting cooler. I you, wish, just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> hey, well, I don't think science knows, actually. Joining us now is Brady Dennis, environmental policy and public health issues reporter for The Washington Post. Brady, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. In the judicial system, there is this concept of settled law, meaning, in effect, the issue has been decided and settled. Is there any scientific equivalent to that, and does it apply to the issue of climate change? That's a really good and difficult question. I mean, when it comes to the science around climate change, I'd say, for the most part, it is settled to the extent that scientists are quite confident, overwhelmingly confident, that humans are and have been warming the planet for quite a while now with our emissions, our carbon dioxide emissions and other emissions of greenhouse gases. So, yes, there is quite a consensus that this is happening, that this is a problem, that this is fueling a lot of impacts that are only going to get more intense and more devastating as time goes on. Now, you know, in the public policy realm, there's still a lot of fighting about how big of a problem that is and what we should do about it. And I think we saw that play out this week between Joe Biden and President Trump. So in the scientific world, a lot of consensus that it's a problem that needs to be dealt with. In the policy world, still a lot of fighting about how to handle that problem. Let's drill down on that. You mentioned the president. The president, in meeting with officials here in California this week, made it absolutely clear in no uncertain terms he disputes the science behind climate change, the science that you say that there is a consensus in the scientific community, but he disputes it even to the point of dismissing it altogether. How does his opinion impact the further study or public policy that you mentioned or funding as far as how it may be fought here in America? President Trump is really an outlier on this when it comes to world leaders. I mean, we're basically the only country not or soon to be not in the Paris Climate Accord which is an agreement from 2015 in which the world collectively said, we're going to try to fight this problem. We're going to try to lower our emissions. So President Trump has been consistently has questioned the science of climate change, which he did again this week and sort of shrugged it off. He, he blamed the problem of the California wildfires, mostly on forest management, which certainly plays a role. But I think scientists would say the climate change is also 
making this problem much worse. How does it affect public policy and funding? I mean, it mainly means that in the past few years of the Trump administration that there has been little to no emphasis on dealing with climate change or with shifting the country away from fossil fuels in a way that would lower its emissions more quickly, which was a focus particularly of the latter half of the Obama administration. And so you just see the priorities being different, President Trump. He's talked often about making America energy independent and has promoted expanded drilling on public lands and offshore and has really bolstered the oil and gas industry. And so you kind of see through those actions and through the inaction on not focusing more on dealing with climate the power that a president has to sway these issues. You made mention of the president with respect to other world leaders as far as the stance, the public-facing stance that a nation may take regarding climate change. But what about on an individual layperson level? Do you feel that Americans are as knowledgeable as our foreign counterparts as far as understanding the intricacies of the issue, knowing the difference between climate and weather and things of that nature? Well, it's hard. I mean, climate change has never registered as a top priority, certainly in a presidential election. It's something that often seems far away and not immediately relevant to people's lives, not in the way that the economy might or any other you know, immediate concerns that folks have. But what we have seen, certainly in polls that the Post has done and a growing number of other outlets have done, is that more and more over time, Americans say that this is something that they see as a problem, something that they want the government to deal with. And, you know, there's a lot of disagreement there, too, about what the solutions would be and how much individuals are willing to sacrifice or pay to, you know, address some of these problems. But I think it's becoming pretty clear, especially as some of these impacts affect more people's lives, that there's a recognition that this is something that we are going to have to deal with over time as a country. Beyond this particular presidential election, where obviously the ideological differences are very stark, On a local level, are you seeing any movement in terms of states and cities as far as moving forward with their own agendas, having nothing to do with federal legislation? Yeah, absolutely. There are any number of mayors, governors, all kinds of people, you know, private businesses and companies who have continued to pursue efforts to fight climate change, despite what the federal government has done in recent years. And so while the United States itself may no longer be or soon to no longer be part of this international effort to fight climate change and to cut greenhouse gas emissions, there are certainly a lot of states, a lot of municipalities, and a lot of companies around the country that are doing a lot to try to do that. So it does pick up some of the slack that might not be coming from the federal government, but you know, the federal government can pull a lot of levers that smaller governments and that even private entities can't. So There is a gap there, but there are certainly many efforts around the country and many people around the country working to solve this problem. He is Brady Dennis, environmental policy and public health issues reporter for The Washington Post. Brady, thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you are interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Mo Kelly in for Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.